Welcome to Sportin' Live. Introducing your host, Ed Draper. Hello there. Welcome along to the podcast, Sport and Life. Thank you for hitting on the button. Do appreciate it. Hope you're well. Hope spring is blooming or if you're down under having a nice autumn at the moment, wherever you are. It's pretty grey and drizzly here at the moment, but hopefully uh, spring is around the corner. Daffodils are popping, all that kind of stuff. Thank you for you for hitting on the button and thank you as ever to the sponsors, Bang and Olufsen of Cheltenham and Serene AV, who, AV even, who are specialists in some of the finest home entertainment brands, providing solutions based around high quality customer service and installations. Check out Bang Nolison of Cheltenham online, BNO underscore Cheltenham. Check out their wonderful store in person if you're in Cheltenham here in the west of England in the heart of the Cotswolds. But uh, if not, go look online. And through that company, Serene AV, always stress the sister company. They can source you whatever equipment fits your home entertainment needs, big screen, whatever you're looking for, fits your budget and what you're after. Contact Jason Briggs and his team. And if you're looking to optimize your immunity, we are pleased to say we've got the ongoing association with Cytoplan, food-based supplement company, and house not far from here, again, in the west of England, beautiful village of Hanley Swan. The discount code, if you go to cytoplan.co.uk, C-Y-T-O-P-L-A-N.co.uk, is Draper 10R, D-R-A-P-E-R, all capital letters, the numerals 1-0 and the capital letter R. They are food-based supplements. My father, Dr. Mark Draper, has been helping consult with on for 20-plus years. He's a general practitioner but also a micronutritionist who's enthralled and kind of concerned about the levels of, of micronutrients, trace elements in particular in UK soil, looking at selenium and zinc and the effects of making that deplete due to over farming over many millennia here in the UK since Roman times. So he's got some interesting theories on that, interesting soil and soil analyses. And certainly he's a big fan of Cytoplan's multivitamins or vitamins like the Immune Complete 2 range. And if you head to cytoplan.co.uk, C-Y-T-O-P-L-A-N.co.uk with Draper 10R, you can get 30% off initial purchase, 10% thereafter well actually a cytoplan uh, fan i found out here is uh, the guest on the podcast this week is jonathan phipps who is a former professional rugby player turned personal trainer he's a trainee osteopath he's a rugby coach of course naturally in his spare time as well very busy man and i believe he does sports massage as well so he's holistic health very interesting to listen to him on all matters of exercise nutrition rest and he's a very enthralling engaging guy as well here he is the one and only jonathan phipps Jonathan Phipps, welcome to the podcast. Brilliant to see you. You've already been out training clients this morning. How are you? Yeah, good. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, um, yeah, I'm good. Good. Just uh, like I was just saying, uh, finished um, quite a heavy couple of days. So uh, yeah, good. I had a weekend at university, so we'll get to that later. But yeah, yeah, no, but it's but it is interesting. How, how are you balancing all that? Because you are a, a dad with with young kids, and you've got you're training to be an os. And a sort of osteopath, but you've also got your uh, personal training business as well. I suppose it's uh, what what are the secrets to, to managing all that? I'm I'm yet to discover them. I think no. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it, it it's definitely a balance. So I am in my fourth year of a five year 
um, part-time integrated masters. So um, basically at university in London, every other weekend, um, uh, not constantly, I sort of do get some holidays if you like. So it's just like being back at school, but it's just at weekends. Um, and then um, this fourth year, we are every single Monday working in a clinic in London to get my clinical hours up. And then um, next year, it's Thursdays and Fridays, not just Mondays. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's ramping up, if you like. But it's definitely a, a challenge. Uh, like I also was just saying to you, I, mm. my wife is doing a pretty amazing job looking after my two boys whilst I'm off studying. And uh, she did say to me the other day, she's rather envious of my time in the car because I complain about travelling to London. Oh, but yeah, me too. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I know yeah, that feeling. She said, uh, but you get time on your own. I'm like, <laughs> oh, yeah, don't think about it like that. Yeah. So, um, but, yeah. It's funny, actually, because I used to go away for work when my little girl was young and actually um, my wife would say that to me. And what I realised, listening to um, neuroscientists <laughs> talk about extroverts and introverts, was what, whereas for me, being on my own was not something I, I really sought. My wife actually <laughs> needed that. So I think there was a <laughs> situation where I was brought up in a chaotic house of four boys and never alone, whereas she had a, she was a second of two girls, but quite sort of uh, young, a lot younger than her, her older sister. So she was finding the lack of alone time a problem. So it's interesting the dynamics of it and the grass is always greener, I think, in those scenarios. Yeah, when you when you don't have it, you crave it. And when you've got it, you sort of don't, you sort of don't realise what you've got, I suppose. Yes. Yeah, and I think you, you had a sports background as well, and I didn't play to a professional level like you, but I think you've always, you know, living at university with packs of, of men and houses and stuff like that, there was always a sense of, I think, people always around, so I think when you don't have that, it's a, it's a different different challenge. And yeah. You feel yeah. like you sort of, um, even though you can listen to podcasts and stuff in the car, I think it can get a bit frustrating, can't it? Yeah. <laughs> Particularly when you're fitness-minded like yourself and you, you want to be out moving all the time. Yeah, it's, um, <clears throat> I actually, there's a, uh, I live in Milton Keynes and there's a, a colleague of mine on the degree and she lives about 15 minutes away. So we actually travel together. Oh, so good. it makes quite a difference. We sort of do a bit of extra study testing in the car and what have you. Um, but yeah, it's uh, that travel time. I've always seen it as a bit of a waste of time. But like I said, since podcasts and being able to talk, you kind of actually get a little bit more benefit out of it. Oh, that's um, good. But yeah, so I'm doing that degree and then I've got uh, my own personal training business and we also um, are part of a, a fitness-based class business in, in Milton Keynes called Balance MK. And then, um, yeah, and like yeah, the family sort of side of things is a challenge. And then I did play <clears throat> quite, a, quite a lot of rugby. Yeah. <laughs> my, body, my body's pretty good, actually. How long, I mean, how long are you retired? Uh, so I was talking about this the other day. Uh, I think the year we got married, so 2017, so four years. Mm. Um, but to be honest with you, it's only just kind of started sinking in a bit. Like, um, you know, I deal with a lot of people who want to lose weight and mm. exercise. I do a lot of rehab stuff with people, lots of funny little syndromes and lots of lifetime stuff. And um, it's only taken me till now to realise how much I miss it. And it's the feeling at the moment I'm not feeling particularly fit and it's just only really just struck me now that actually getting paid to exercise is so easy <laughs> when you're not getting paid to exercise all of a sudden you've got this whole other side of things you're like you know I do enjoy it it's not that I don't enjoy it but it's that motivation side of it and it's yeah but you're, you know, but you're, you're looking good shape is it the difference between what you talk about is match, is match fitness is it is that what you mean that kind of cardiovascular fitness that you have when you play elite sport 
Yeah, so um, I also have, so I've done, dabbled with a bit of CrossFit and I like a bit of weightlifting. The gymnastics side of CrossFit, I'm terrible at. So it's, you know, again, a good challenge. But um, I've also started doing a bit of jujitsu and um, uh, one of my clients is a coach. She's a personal trainer and she's a jujitsu coach. And in fact, the girl I travel to university with, she's also um, an ex-GB judo um, player and she also now does jujitsu. So kind of a little bit of little bit of peer pressure um and they said oh come and have a go and I've always talked about wanting to do something something that's physical and it's kind of got that sort of competitive edge but without the com- the the, the um, impact um because the reason, reason I retired is because of concussions I had a wow. few too many concussions and I just was concerned about future life and know just got engaged and wanted to get married and always wanted to have children and I thought well I don't really want to sort of end up you hear horrendous horror stories which are actually coming out now more than prior to this ex-rugby players yeah so you you might have uh, there's a chap called Steve Thompson who played for England yeah um, and Alex Popham and Mm. um, I'm trying to remember there's another uh, Australian born English seven um, and they, they're all, t- I think they're taking World Rugby to court over it. You know? um, so Steve Thompson played um, 2003 World Cup. Yeah. England won, won the World Cup and he can't remember playing in the World Cup, you know. Um, so it's CTE, Potton. is it? It's CTE, what they talked about yeah. in NFL as well, yeah. yeah. So it's that early on stage dementia, stuff like that. And at the time, I'd, I'd studied a bit on concussion um, with my sports science degree I did. Mm. Um, did a module on concussion and back then this was 2000 and 2004 2003 you know we knew concussion was pretty bad mm. we don't know the long-term effects and you don't know that accumulative sort of stuff so when I started getting I had I broke my jaw when I was playing abroad um, and I, I definitely got concussed then prior to that I, I reckon I had about a dozen concussions mm. um, you know what and position then, we playing Jonathan you forward for yeah, I was a hooker, so um, yeah, right in the middle of the scrum. So that's why my neck's quite big. So <laughs> um, it looks like yeah, my, ears, my ears aren't too bad though; they could not be too worse. bad. No, no, it's, yeah. Uh, my brother, um, my brother's a rugby player as well, and he's got one terrible ear. So uh, yeah, that's <laughs> one. Oh, what was he? Uh, was he? Uh, was he a prop? Was he? No, no, he's a hooker, but he got hit on one side. So oh, one okay, yeah, right. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so I keep winding up about that. But no, so I, um, yeah, had a few concussions, broke my jaw, then ended up meeting my wife, sort of long distance between Barcelona and here, uh, relationship. Then I decided it was, I was one injury away from retirement, moved back. And then I started getting um, a concussion with them. Just, I, I think I was over it. I had a good five months off uh, for my jaw. And then um, got back here. I remember having one concussion, I took a bit of time off and then I just got a really like, innocuous knock to the nose and then I saw stars middle of a game and at that moment I just remember thinking I just think I've had enough mm. and it was kind of a combination of that and you know the, the circumstances going from playing full-time professional to part-time where you're trying to work and trying to tr- maintain the same standards trying to train trying to get this you know, got, I've got a lot of envy, uh, not envy, a lot of respect for guys who are part-time, you know, because it's just so hard, mm. you know. Um, it, you, can, you can do the fitness work, but you don't have the rest. Is the rest key, do you think? The sort of... The, oh, the recovery. Recovery is the key to that. You know, people like... Um, 
when you look at sportsmen who've had massively long careers, people like Teddy Sheringham, yes. an enormous career, you know, they talk about his recovery. I don't think he drank at all. I think his recovery, we talk about training hard, but recovering aggressively. So any, anything you can do, that's why I think there's a lot of things around um, passive stuff. Mm. So um, like this electromuscular stimulation you can look at. There's a few things. There's one we looked at. And it was tissue specific, um, like, like shockwave. And um, what you're doing is you're trying to help the tissues recover without moving. Um, the other thing that's really interesting at the moment is um, blood flow restriction training. Okay. Because you aren't putting your joints at so much stress. So you can train at 30%, but still get the benefits of lifting at 80%. Okay. Um, how, do you, like that how, do you the, how do you restrict the blood flow? Is it through bands? <laughs> it's a bit of a new, it is bands, tourniquets basically. But there's a bit more complex than that because obviously that can be quite dangerous. Mm. Um, there's the adaptive blood flow restriction cuffs you can get now, and um, the it's, the application is um, more on osteoarthritis sufferers because obviously you don't want to be putting too much stress with the joints, um, but they can still lift and still get the benefits. And I think that the application of that in recovery might be quite interesting with sportsmen because. You play a, a tough game of rugby or any sport really it takes you a good two three days to recover you're then into the middle of the week you're then preparing for the next weekend for the next game you know if you could continue your training cycle but not have the joints put on so much stress you could potentially get the same training benefits but also the recovery mm. so recovery is massively key um, and then the nutrition side of it as well is enormous so yeah um, do you follow any philosophies around nutrition what's your approach to that it's really that's a really challenging one like yes i do but um like from a personal training point of view we're not meant to um it's not advise not the word prescribe we're not meant to prescribe any nutrition so i don't tell anyone what to eat particularly um i've got certain ideas around things um so i actually take the side to plan um oh brilliant things yeah um i found it probably about six months ago, looking at some bits and pieces. I like the philosophy around the bioavailability, the natural states of vitamins and minerals and stuff. Um, and I also completely agree with a couple of other things around farming methods and things, you know, mm. it just happens that nutrients aren't as available. Yeah, food isn't always what it seems. It's an interesting concept, isn't it? But my dad sort of illuminated that on, on me when I was a kid. And I think actually, the more you think about it, the more you realise, well, maybe spinach grown in this part of the world isn't the same as spinach grown in this part of the world. It depends on what the soil yeah. is like. Yeah. Yeah, we, we get, uh, we use a company, um, uh, 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 Riverford Farm, vegetable delivery, organic food. Yeah, organic we have Abel and Cole, which is, I think. Yeah, similar. very similar. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, and I really like the philosophies around that. You can choose seasonal. Um, rather than imported stuff and um, uh, they provide it's always quite a bit of an eye-opener you get a few bits and pieces and they go like, what do I do with that and it's quite good education <laughs> yeah. and, it, um, it, it, and it is more expensive but I always think it's a curious conversation you have with people is like oh I don't want to spend that much money on food and you sort of think well if you're not going to spend a significant amount on food what are you going to spend it on you know I'd rather people putting good yeah. stuff into my body than than buying an, an extra laptop or whatever it is over a period yeah. of time it's it's yeah it's all about your focus and what your priorities are i think i would i would actually say um i don't think the 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 organic vegetables we buy are much more expensive if more expensive than what we get from the supermarket um mm. if you're searching for particular stuff 
Um, and it's delivered as well. So there's all that added sort of stuff. I, I'm not sure how much more expensive it is actually. Um, I also think as well, um, you know, it changes your palate. It challenges your palate a bit when you get all this random stuff in there. Um, yeah. And you get a lot more seasonal stuff has to be better on a lot of levels. Um, but yeah, I think that's the sort of argument I have with my dad, actually. It's over, over that. He says, oh, God, you must be really rich. And I'm like, well, I'm not. I said, I just, it's my priority. And I'd rather spend the money now yeah. um, putting it into my body than I would on potential medications at the end of life, you know? So, but yeah, it's a... It's interesting to listen to you because you you miss rugby, but when you you're obviously someone who's very um, thoughtful about looking after yourself mentally, physically, but with rugby, I mean, like all a lot of sports, a lot of contact sports, you're actually sort of building yourself up to knock yourself down again, aren't you? Because it's so attritional, and you said it's you know you said you feel sore for days afterwards, like all sports. I think rugby is probably up there in terms yeah. of how people feel, particularly a front row forward like yourself. Yeah. But how do you reconcile that? Was it what you got mentally out of playing rugby, the, the social side of it, the the achievement, the sort of performance aspect of it that, that made it worth it? Because for someone who wants to be healthy, it's it's obviously uh, it, it can be a dangerous pursuit. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, it's a, it, you're right, it is interesting. Um, I, I'm very lucky, I've only got a couple of things. I've got a big toe, probably my big toe and my middle finger, which is slightly bent, you mm. probably see. Um, <laughs> I, um, yeah, and then the occasional, a few scars and bits and pieces. I think it's, um, we are, we're a product of our lifestyle, I think. And the, I haven't really thought, massively about this until I started studying osteopathy and about that you know our bodies are we are machine there's a few theories in osteopathy around mechanics mm. you know and there's much more variation in our bodies than we we realize you know there are there are things where you know um there's a couple of muscles which aren't present in people there's certain certain areas of the body which there's much more variation there's extra ribs we can have there's extra really? we can have yes yeah, it's, it's fascinating and there's much more variation than we believe um, where would be an example of an extra muscle if there, if there was uh, so you can have more than four quadriceps you you, you can really? have more muscles there um there's a muscle called your psoas muscle hmm. and you have a psoas major and a psoas minor but because we've evolved to be um, bipedal rather than quadrupedal. Some people don't have a psoas minor. Um, uh, there's a, certain, a couple of adaptations, even biceps. I think there's, there's things where people have more than one. Um, and there's a couple of couple of areas in the body where you've got little bones, which sometimes don't appear and things. There's a, a couple of sesamoid bones in the back of the knee um, and also in the ankle, which sometimes aren't there. And if they are there, sometimes they're fine. Sometimes they cause problems. So it's all about, in osteopathy, we talk a lot about structure function. So yes. if it's structured, if it functions, it, you know, the structure interrelated. Um, so rugby, I think it's like you said, it's the benefits of what the sport gives over the outcomes. At the time, I didn't think, I didn't think about the future. You think you're invincible when you're young, don't you? <laughs> yeah. I'm still, I'm still that 20 yeah. year old, that 18 year old. Oh, I know, well, that's, a, that's a problem. Yeah, I've, I've, I've had knee and ankle injury, had COVID. I've had a little bit of thrombophlebitis in my, in my leg because I spend a lot of time in the, it's like the last few months it's been like, oh, it's a bit of a wake up call at 40. You suddenly get these things, you know, happening. But yeah. is it, but double edged sword that you think you, you can't stop because if you stop, it's, it's only going to get worse. So you have to sort yeah. of find an optimum amount of uh, activity and, and positivity of, of, of uh, getting out there and doing it yeah that, um yeah absolutely and um 
like you touched on before, one of the big things I miss from rugby and, uh, you know, is that camaraderie, the mm. thing of boys and, you know, spending the day with a bunch of people who you, you wouldn't necessarily be friends with outside of that group, but you do become friends. You form quite an amazing bond through your shared experiences. Um, I do miss all of that, but then I've still got friends. We still chat all the time, still drop each other WhatsApp messages, some more inappropriate than others, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I do ache, but I, it definitely was worth it and I wouldn't change anything. You know, yeah, I, I might have done a bit harder. I might have done a bit things a bit differently and looked at things differently and maybe possibly appreciated it at the time. Mm. Maybe paused a bit more. I think that's what I'm learning now. So I'm, um, I'm 40 this year. And having children totally changed my outlook on things. You know, I always wanted to do this degree, but now I'm like, I can't wait to get to the end of it, spend more time with them. And um, it's changed the way I thought about things and, you know, looking after myself and the nutrition side of things. I want to be around for as long as possible, which might sound a bit um, negative, but I think we all now realise that life is finite. You know, we've yes. got to get on with it. Well, that's the challenge with health and fitness, isn't it? I think is what's your philosophy? Because a, a guy called Ross Mitchell, who's been on the podcast, and he was taking a personal training course that I that I enrolled on. And his question to us is, what's your sort of life fitness philosophy if you want to combine fitness with it? And it was, you know, the, the 80-20 one comes up, doesn't it? And people think, well, actually, I want to live 80% clean, but I still want to have a bit of fun and, and, and have a couple of beers now and again, because it's not, it's not, it's not going to last forever, even if I live the cleanest life possible, unless these longevity experts are right and they can make us live indefinitely you think it, it, we're only here for a short time it's a, it's a combination of trying to be fit enough to enjoy it and I think for a lot of us for me in particular it's not necessarily the, the top number that I make to in life it's more about how I feel on on route yes yeah, that um they talk about uh what is it years lived um healthy or or pain-free years you know there's a few statistics around actually we are living longer but at the end of end of life the quality is not there um yes yeah, oh it's really hard isn't it? like i don't get me wrong i my rugby career I, we drank a lot <laughs> yeah you know um, <laughs> that's still, still big in the pro game was it what after a saturday oh god um so i i left england in 2006 i went and played rugby in new zealand for two years wow. and then i was in spain for uh, eight nine years and um, in New Zealand, I wasn't professional. I was trying to be, and I got into the provincial team. Like, like um, you know, a lot of the boys I hang around with their Kiwi culture, they do a lot of drinking. Um, you know, there's quite a lot of stuff documented. A lot of the teams, you know, get into a bit of strife every now and again. Um, so did did a fair bit of uh, socialising. Let's call it socialising. Sounds a bit better. Um, and then in Spain, there was a big influence from a lot of um, sort of Australian, New Zealand, South Africa, English influence player-wise. Mm. Um, but I think European culture, they tend to, the point of alcohol, they drink a bit more generally, just as a bit more, I'd say they drink more consistently. We are much yeah. more like, you know, your archetypal binge drinking type thing. Um, but we did, we did it. It's a really good way of breaking down barriers. It's not necessarily good for your body, but from a team building perspective, if you go and have a few beers and play a few games, you tend to be a bit more relaxed and you you bond a bit better. Yeah. Um, I think Exeter Chiefs do it. Um, when they go, I heard a story about someone going on a tour with them 
And basically one of the players turned around and said, what have you got those bags for? And he said, well, it's all my training kit. He went, we're not training. You know, it's all about team bonding. And they yeah. still have um, drinks on the bus, win, lose or draw. I've heard stories about that. You know, mm. they always have a few drinks together, you know, just to calm down, just take a bit of a reality check and say, you know, we are professional, but you, you're, you've got to live a bit. And you mm. know. Well, that's the thing. I think sometimes I feel empathy. We can be very judgmental, particularly of, say, young Premier League footballers who go on a night out and they're sort of 18, 19. And I think about when I was at Loughborough University at 18, 19 and the, the antics we, we got up to. And actually, if someone was filming that, you know, we had very kind of embryonic sort of uh, brick phones with flip phones in those days. It wasn't it wasn't yeah. anything like the, the phones now. So no one was filming it. But yeah, I think we can be very judgmental, those people. But also, yes, they're millionaires are getting paid well, but also they're the young people who want to enjoy life. So it's, it's very much a balance, isn't it, I think? Yeah, they've all got, they've got to go through, what was it, talking at the weekend, talking about our, the way our clinic works is you, you see a, you see a patient, you present to the tutor, and then you, they either tear it to pieces and say, no, go away, think again, or they say, yeah, okay, I agree with that. And you've got to make mistakes to learn from it, I think, you know, and you, I think it's really difficult when, yeah, in the same way, I'm glad there weren't any phones around when I was at uni first time around. Yes. You know, the stuff you do when you're that age, you don't think about the consequences later on and you're developing, I think. So judging people on today's standards, judging history on today's standards is a really challenging and probably controversial thing. You know, you learn from it and move forward. I think, um, you know, those guys as well at 18, 19 are learning their bodies and they're learning movement and some develop much quicker than others so it's it's a real challenge um you know i think back to what you originally asked about the philosophy i used to think about just working as hard as possible in the gym just push your body to that absolute extreme you know and, and yeah yeah basically just go as hard as you can to get the most amount out of it i sort of have rethought that a little bit and I now realize you know that sort of restorative fitness you know the Pilates yoga the calming relaxing the breathe work stuff is also vitally important um you know there's a few things um I think around again this goes this is all based on sort of some of the osteopathic principles we're learning around your diaphragm pelvic floor all that sort of stuff your diaphragm relates to a lot of things if your diaphragm is tight you know we, we talk about stitches you can get back pain you can get lots of things mm-hmm. diaphragm's not working properly your blood flow is not occurring properly you're not breathing properly there's all sorts of things around stress and the neck it can relate to all sorts of stuff so um i think challenging your body in lots of different ways and your mind as well is really really important um and it's it's all about that balance, which everyone talks about, but I don't think people truly have. Mm. Uh, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's, a, there's a recovery period for any extreme exercise, isn't it? You need to do like, say, almost a complementary exercise like yoga or Pilates to, to counterbalance that. Just touching on the on the concussion stuff, because it's obviously a big thing in, in a lot of sports now. And the NFL initially, I think, had the, the wave of publicity. And then football has followed suit. One of my co-presenters at Sky Sports, Hayley McQueen, her dad, Gordon, Manchester United and Scotland defender is, is going through early onset dimension now <clears throat> doesn't remember too much and they've linked it to heading the ball he was a centre half so headed the ball a lot yeah. um, there's, there's a concern there do you think the resentment or recrimination stems from just the fact that people weren't 
sure, did they think that some people knew that it that it was damaging long term? That perhaps it wasn't. Did you know about the risks? Because I, I suppose, like you say, you always knew it was a tough game, rugby. Did you? Was it the concussion? The long term effects of that you weren't sure of. And do you think you would have played it anyway if, if you'd have known? It's a, it's a difficult one in hindsight, I suppose. It's very difficult, isn't it? Um, like, you know, our life expectancy has increased dramatically in the past 20, 30 years. Mm. The potential to develop a lot of those long-term diseases and things has gone on, has, has become a lot greater. Sure. You know, and, and the recognition of a lot of those diseases, you know, I think we were talking yesterday, um, I did a lecture on diabetes on Sunday, and there are an estimated 40% of diabetics walking around don't know they're diabetic. Well, you know, because of diagnostics now, we can identify things a lot more. So, you know, the same goes for a lot of sort of cancers and lots of other neuromuscular, neurological and muscular problems. So I wonder whether we, people were suffering from the effect that we just didn't know. We didn't know what was going on. You know, we put it down to, um, you know, Alzheimer's rather than dementia, which are very similar. You know, we put it down to certain things like that. Um, I think I, I, I think it's been documented that there were they did know some of the risks. And I think the problem with this whole thing with the rugby players right now is that they are they are saying that the risks were known, but there were no precautions taken. Mm. Um, it's really difficult because contact sports there was always an element of risk everything we do there's an element of risk you know any medication you take there's a side effect any therapeutic intervention there are side effects so you know you have to go to weigh up the risk versus the benefit risk reward stuff um yeah and you only, and you only live yeah and you like you say life is fleeting as well isn't it so it's not like you don't play rugby yeah. you're gonna live forever what's the, what's the thing I, i'd rather um travel through life and come skidding in at the end having had a full life rather than quietly go to my grave I, you know i do kind of think it's definitely a balance isn't it but god i wouldn't i, I love rugby great fun good fun and and actually most of the concussions were my fault like getting into the wrong position getting fatigued so you could argue i wasn't fit enough when it comes to things like heading ball that's different it's uh impact of stuff isn't it it's uh mm. i don't know much i know there's a few footballers i've read about and they're even talking about um banning heading in schools weren't they yeah in the states i think they talk about bringing it in here but in, in the united states i think it's under the age of 11 or maybe under 12 they're not allowed to head the ball in in soccer practice as they would call it yeah so they talked about in rugby um there was a debate around not allowing any tackling until they got to 17 18 Mm. Um, the problem with that is that that means as soon as you get to that age, you're going to be full into tackling. Your body's not conditioned. You won't have the technique potentially. No. Um, you know, in New Zealand, they do an age, uh, it's an age grade, but also weight grade mm. classes. So it's a, I think it's an under 80 kilo and an over 80 kilo. You've got oh, quite yeah. a lot of um, Pacific Islanders go to school there and play rugby. And they tend to develop a bit quicker. Mm. So you could get, you know, 14 year old lads, um you know who are 60 50 kilos playing against 80 90 kilo lads in the same year so actually yeah. you want to try and limit the, the damage on those guys well that, that was i mean even in, in england uh predominantly uh caucasian uh players i remember when we were kids in the teens they'd be always like every team you play against at school they'd be like you'd have one big lad and they'd have one big lad when you're like 12 or 13 yeah. and you'd be sort of which is a, which which has got the best big lad and you sort of give him the ball and we had a big lad my friend andy who's, who's literally the same size as he, he is now as he was at 11 or 12 and 
he was he was good but not particularly aggressive so it's depending how aggressive their uh, their oppo- their opposition but it was like you know they these guys would run through and they're sort of basically like the rest of us were tiny little boys at five feet tall trying to like, tackle these people <laughs> it was it was a difficult sport i think in the in the youth development when you have contact to just manage it and make it fair isn't it yeah it's and you, you have to protect people like it's uh I've done a bit of kids coaching. I do a little bit of coaching. Uh, I've done some consultancy work with Hungary, which is quite interesting. And there's a massive push on developing the kids there. So what we tend to do is look at other sports. So look at judo, handball, stuff like that, and try and, because the sort of you know, transfer skills is brilliant. Um, but it is it is a challenge going from, because they're football dominated, like most of Europe, football dominated. And then you're trying to explain to them about this ball, that you can wrestle off that person, you can get them to the ground, but you've got to do certain things to get them to the ground. And you're probably better off not doing this. Look at this. And it's, rugby is quite complicated. It's, uh, I was trying to talk to someone at the weekend. They were asking about the rules. Um, I think it was the England-Italy game, because I've got some quite understanding lecturers. And they're like, yeah, you can, you can watch the rugby. Just have it on silent and please no shouting. And, and then every now and again, they'll say, well, what's the score? You know, so yeah. I'll let them know. Less um, nerve-wracking than the Scotland game anyway, wasn't it, I suppose, for, from an English perspective? That, well, sorry? <laughs> Less nerve-wracking than the Scotland game from an oh, English yeah. perspective. Yeah, it was at yeah, least I, pretty comfortable in, in Rome. Yeah, I quite like the Scotland game. though. I, I, the result oh. wasn't great to the end, but I actually thought it was quite a good game. It was brilliant mm-hmm. on both sides. Um, yeah, so I just don't think we deserve to win it, really. Um, you know, oh, a bit controversial maybe, but I think we got into lots of positions just couldn't finish and Scotland yeah. defended like Trojans if you've got a good I think we had 60% of the possession maybe even 70 and if you can't win a game on that like I just don't think you deserve to really you think because I had Alex Payne on the podcast who's a rugby presenter at Sky for many years and, and has a, po- a podcast now the good the bad and the, the rugby yeah I listened to your podcast with him actually it was really yeah good. But we were talking about when we were kids, rugby being still relatively big, but not professional. And it turned professional in 1996. And he was saying he felt that the sport had missed an opportunity to gain a bit of the, the cultural sort of um, presence, maybe to, to make inroads on football or to become in the UK, the established, undisputed number two sport. I don't know how you feel about it. Do you think it is a complexity of rugby that makes it harder for people to, to get on board? With Although during the Six Nations, I think from a, I guess, a national perspective, everyone watches the, the viewing figures are huge and it's, it's big, but maybe the, the club game doesn't quite have the, the following that, that reflects the Six Nations' interest. I think it's a bit of a combination of um, complexity. It is. It, there are little nuanced rules and stuff like that. And it's a bit like, well, why, why, did, why did that happen like that? And also interpretations, massive, you know, interpretation of um, ruck, for instance, like when the referee has to decide whether one team was correct in the way they entered a ruck or not. And then they say, you know, penalty against them. And he said, oh, but it came from that side. The referee's like, well, I didn't see it like that. You know, so yeah. um, that's got to play into part of it. And then availability, I suppose, rugby clubs are, you know, less available, possibly an element of the physicality of it. Football, you can potentially go and have a kick around with your mates in a park and come away thinking, oh, yeah, I quite enjoy that. Rugby, you go and play a bit of rugby with your mates, you invariably end up finishing when one of you can't move. Yeah, because um, chucking a ball around is not quite the same, is it? You can sort of have shots at each other in football. Yeah. It feels a bit like you've done something, whereas rugby, just playing catch is quite nice, but it's not, doesn't yeah. feel like you've participated. Yeah, the... Um, the touch element as well, touch rugby. Whenever I've played a game of touch rugby, and I don't think it's me that's the common denominator, it's always descended into like semi-contact. That always yeah. ends up being contact. It's, it's, a, it's a great sport. I do think it's, um, 
uh, availability, like history of rugby was predominantly in public schools, you know, and it got passed down. And then, you know, you've got things like the other, the other public school sports, like Harrow football, Eton wall game, things like that. Yeah, the drug um, version, so, yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So my school um, had a had like a version of that with the handball thing. It was quite interesting. I never did it, to be honest with you. Mm. What school was um, that? Uh, Stowe. Stowe School. Oh, okay. Nice. Yeah. Um, but it, 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 it's interesting when you trace back rugby and football, and I suppose you can look at NFL, Aussie rules. They all came from a similar sort of origins of yeah. mob football, then public schools, which is kind of effectively private schools for people listening in other countries. It's sort of confusing yeah. when we say, say, is, yeah. say public school, but they had that history of they had their own versions of the games, and there was a lot of um, rancor about whether you should handle the ball or not handle the ball, and who should handle it. So they ended up getting mm-hmm. football splitting off, and only the goalkeeper could handle it, and rugby. Yeah, you know, everyone could handle it. And then American football added the forward pass, which rugby never had. So it's, it's inter- the evolution of the sports yeah. in the last couple of hundred years. Well, um, American football, you can actually pass the ball backwards as many times as you like, but no one ever passed it. No. Yeah, if a wide receiver catches it, you could theoretically you see it very, yeah. very occasionally every few years that they actually then throw it back and throw it off to someone else to, to run and score. But yeah. American football is interesting in a sense. Rugby, you have got specific positions that your expectation of, of having the ball is less, but everyone gets a chance to get on the ball. Whereas in American football, there's players who presumably go their whole careers <laughs> never, never touching yeah. the football, which is interesting. Yeah. It's a, that's also another side of it is, um, you know, with the whole contact thing around rugby and the history of it, you know, rugby always was a sport where no matter what body shape you were, there was a position for you on the field with professionalism and people lifting more weights and all that sort of stuff. You kind of got to a stage where everyone was a massive athlete. I think that's had an impact with the concussions because you get huge people running against huge people. You then get the element of actually more injuries occur the last 20 minutes of the game. They put their substitutes on. You've got fresh players against fatigued players. You know, all that stuff amalgamates into it. The professionalism side of it, adding money to it, has also made it, people train a lot more. You know, it's it's a bit of a snowball. Um, It'd be interesting to see where it goes. And then the rules side of it as well. I know, um, like the scrum stuff and the the ruck, they're trying to slow things down a little bit and make it more of a contest because otherwise... We end up pushing towards a bit more like rugby league. You know, the, yeah. tend to be everyone tends to be big, strong, powerful, and fast um, with the handling skills. Mm. It's uh, it'll be interesting to see in the next 10, 15 years where rugby goes. Could they make a bigger pitch, bigger field? People have said that, haven't they, in the past? Because it's a similar size oh, to a football yeah. pitch, but you've got less, you've got more, you've got 15 sites, you've got 30 people on there. There's an argument that, as you say, is professionalization, people get fitter. Maybe there'll be people running for space more if there is more space, not, not boshing into each other as much. I would not like to play on the bigger field. I'm not gonna lie. I was one of the the slightly more return players at the front. I didn't want to, didn't want to be yeah. for. <laughs> oh well, no, fair enough. It'll be interesting how it how it develops. What about osteopathy then? Because you're making this transition. Is that going to be part of the personal fitness program, or is it going to be solely osteopathy eventually? And how do you what attracts you to the the, the, the sort of discipline of osteopathy? Yeah, it's a good question. See, um, in fact, I've got to write a piece um, for one of my modules. Uh, it's a career development piece as to what I want to develop into. Um, so I um, always wanted to do a bit more study. I originally applied to do physiotherapy um, and then ended up doing exercise physiology at Coventry. Um, but I, in hindsight, thank God I didn't do physiotherapy because I, I just wouldn't have been able to put the effort into it with the rugby and stuff. Um, and uh, always wanted to go back to study I kind of I came back, was working, playing a bit of rugby, coaching as well, and I thought I, you know, want to look at what I can do. 
um, rehab. I used to work in um, exercise rehabilitation at uh, John Radcliffe. So I was working in cardiac rehab. Oh, wow. Exercising cardiac patients, stuff like that. So I've always liked the clinical side of it. Um, and then I was sort of looking at different philosophies around stuff. Uh, I've got a friend who's a chiropractor. She's treated me quite a few times. Um, I've come across a few osteopaths. The physio I was, who was our team physio in Spain, studied osteopathy in England at the same time. Um, manipulated my neck most weeks. Definitely had your neck cracked, you yeah. know. And yeah. I just talked to him about philosophies and stuff. And then I found the university I'm at, which is University College of Osteopathy, which is used to be called the British School of Osteopathy. There's a part-time course, and I just mm. I can't I couldn't commit to a full-time time study. It doesn't seem fair. Um, so when I found this course, visited there, just felt like actually the course was really good. They got a really good history, and it's a good mixture of um, theoretical lecture-based stuff and hands-on stuff. And I I thought actually, you know, it, it seems like only yesterday I enrolled actually. <laughs> Um, so what, 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 is the, what, what is the theory then? Is it manipulation of, of muscles to, to recalibrate the body? Is that the fundamental? So oste the word osteopathy is actually not particularly reflective of the profession. It's a massive debate even within the circle, oh. osteopathic circles. If there's any Facebook groups of osteopaths, they all debate what osteopathy is. Um, so it was developed by an individual, a guy called A.T. Still in the, I'm going to get everything wrong now, um, um, late 1800s and he was a, a doctor in America his children died of a disease and I can't remember the name of it now and then he sort of lost um, confidence in modern medicine modern medicine back then was a bit questionable like yeah. um, you know giving people mercury and stuff like that so if it didn't cure what they had it ended up killing them um, like leeches, leeches and things like that yeah yeah all that sort of stuff you know medicine's fascinating like where we are at now compared to where we were before um you know even just a hundred years ago the stuff they used to do is quite amazing and well i say amazing you know quite ghastly but you know it, they didn't know any better um no. at the time um so uh osteopathy there was sort of Again, I should know this stuff, but I'm just... No, <laughs> Sorry, it's um, not a test. It's not, don't worry, I'm not, I'm not kind of a um, covert, covert examiner. Yeah, there's a couple, a couple of principles around osteopathy. That structure function one I mentioned before, um, something called the, the, the rule of the artery is key. So fluid movement throughout the body is key to your body functioning correctly. Um, your body has its own medicine chest, hmm. um, which sounds a bit weird, but actually we have the ability to heal and it's about facilitating that healing. So one part of osteopathy is that manipulation, that joint manipulation, you know, that cracking, popping, clicking stuff that which you can go and have, um, which is always um, sort of seen as the more risky side of things, but it's actually not that risky as long as you understand what you're doing and why you're doing it. And then there's things around your nervous system and your muscles, um so you know, fair bit of soft tissue stuff um i said yesterday actually i saw a patient and i said something about i didn't do any treatment with him i was just doing the case history formulate my ideas and, and all of that then i went and saw my tutor told her what i thought was going on and bits and pieces and the, then i had to go through a whole testing stage to sort of test my hypothesis if you like yeah, And then at the end of it, I, I felt a bit bad because I hadn't really done a huge amount with him. I mean, I had. I'd looked at his body, done a load of bits through his hip and his back and bits. 
Um, but I hadn't done what I would have considered treatment. And I said at the end, you know, you know, this is the way it is. You know, we have long conversations. I'm just trying to risk assess all this sort of stuff. And I said something along the lines of, if you come back next week, I'll make sure you get a massage. Later on, she said, we are not massage therapists. Don't <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the fluid, the fluid movement's interesting. Because I, I mentioned I had thrombophlebitis a couple of years ago on the inside of my knee after a football injury. And then I'd, I'd flown on a plane. And then I had sort of recurrence in my shins on my left side a little bit. And I think my dad, who's a doctor, says, you know, it's a lot of times if I'm driving in the car, then sitting at work at a desk, you're not mobile enough. I mean, do you think the fluid yeah. movement how much does that interplay with sedentary lifestyles, risk factors? Oh, you know, that, is, that, is that something that you're aware of? Massively, massively. So I quite like the analogy of thinking about your body as being a lot of different pools of water. Mm. And if they don't flow, they get stagnant. And then if they get stagnant, you get into a situation where it's, you know, toxic. That's a bit, it's a good analogy. It's a good image, I think. You know, so where people are sitting at desks, sitting there all day long, you know, we're anterior dominant front of our chest everything's facing forward you know driving a car eating sitting at a desk um you know all that stuff we're we're, we're forward facing so the backs of our bodies are getting elongated the front of our bodies are getting shortened yeah you know? um, just my posture as we speak now you get <laughs> conscious of it though don't you but it's good yeah. to be conscious of it i suppose so um, there is no link between posture and pain. There's been a few studies recently, and there's a, a systematic analysis I saw the other day. There is no link between posture and pain. So your posture does not give you pain. What does give you pain, and what there is a definite link to, is lack of movement and pain. It's a definite link. So if you sit there at a desk all day long, you, you're probably not going to be in a good place. But if you can get up and move around, um, you know, intermittently. Um, so I quite like this concept of, have you heard of the Pomodoro technique? No. Um, yeah, look it up, it's interesting. It's it, Italian for tomato, named off the guy who- oh, pom pom it. Pomodoro, is it? Yeah, Pomodoro, yeah. So they looked at, and it was based around business and productivity, and they came up with this system where you, it's a timer, and you, I'm pretty sure you can download a, a, um, a timer online. So it's 25 minutes of work, so like, your normal whatever it is work at a desk and then five minutes of something else so mm. the idea is you get up you go make a cup of tea or you do this and so it's it's, inter it's interval training but for work basically yeah and you um, focus it yeah and it, it reflects the fact that your focus is very limited i think we think that we can stare at a screen and get things done yeah. but actually i think your actual it's sort of initial serious focus is something like three minutes and then your mind will wander so i think actually getting up 25 minutes and going for a break probably isn't a bad idea anyway but yeah. I, I try and i try to get home just practical things i do and i don't know whether you advise your clients but if i've been in the car even i'll get back really late at night i'll try and do some lying on my back some kind of cycles in the air and do some back stretching do some kind of yeah. stretching before i go to bed because otherwise you just think yeah. you haven't moved at all so just to just to loosen things off yeah i was reading something yesterday and it said the average person sits at a desk i think it was eight hours of sitting at a desk then you've got the average person watches four hours of tv so you've got that four hours yeah. then the average person has i think it's seven hours of sleep essentially we are stationary for 20 hours out of 24 which you know is, is pretty significant it's huge yeah not how we're designed is it and it's interesting that there's a guy called um andrew huberman human lab podcast really good neurosurgeon in the states at stanford and he put uh, i think he put something on social media that was from leading cardiologists who said Yes, the 150 to 180 minute of zone two, whatever you call it, cardiovascular exercise is good. And that's slightly breathless um, where you can hold a conversation. But 
but still but, but, but with difficulty. He said, that's great. But if you do five hours more or more of sedentary uh, behavior every day, i.e. not moving, then you counteract all that good work. So I think yeah. a lot of us have thought we can go hard in the gym and then just sit around. But actually, you're better off if you can't go to the gym. You're better off. You're probably those, those people that move around a lot during the day rather than go to the gym in one short burst are probably better off. Yeah, the, um, those, those um, levels were also um, constructed um the 150 minutes mm. uh, five half an hour sessions a week of moderate level physical activity they were also you've got to remember when they were sort of conceived and that was i think it was late 70s early 80s and it hasn't really been revised so you know you think about back then um we didn't really i mean i'm guessing because i was people young, more, more um, mobile weren't they yeah yeah, yeah. you know uh, we didn't work the same way everyone the labor saving devices we have nowadays you know your television remote control your mobile phone the stuff we've got connected to our phones we can sit there and click buttons and turn stuff on mm. and off you know now people just sit there and do that whereas before they're moving a lot more so i, I actually think that number should be closer to doubled really um you know you, you've got to get moving you've got to use your body we were made to move we were not made to sit down no. unfortunately the world has gone in that direction well, yeah, I mean, the pandemic happened in 1970. I'm not sure what they'd have done, but well, there was a, there's a, flu, there's a big flu in 1968, as I, as I recall, my mum my tells me when uh, she was at school. But actually, you look at it now and you think, um, well, they wouldn't have worked from home because <laughs> maybe not everyone even had a landline phone in, in those days. So yeah. more. But if you, how have you reflected on the pandemic, not on COVID per se, but the effects on, on other aspects of health? Have you seen it as concerning, the, the sedentary lifestyle increasing? Yeah, I think, yeah, absolutely. Like the, the number of people I see who, who, you know, case in point was my patient yesterday, who actually do no, no work, no, no physical movement apart from their work, um, you know, is quite amazing. I think people have become much more aware of it. Um, I've seen a lot more people with lots more anxiety and psychological problems, you know, um, that sitting at home, you know, I think we don't, um, I certainly, reflecting on it, um, living with my wife and my kids, mm. certainly gave me focus um, and someone to talk to, just that simple, someone yeah. to talk to every day, someone to talk to, you know, people living on their own, I think, is, that must have been pretty challenging, you know, and I think that's why a lot of those things were put in place where people like that could actually bubble with other, other families. Mm. Um, I think it's um, I train a couple of young guys who are potential rugby players and um, it's all red, it's all sort of you know people's anxieties their own anxieties we can't judge on what makes someone anxious compared to someone else it's it's just that innate internal thing these boys are two of them I'm thinking of are 14 15 years old they are really good rugby players, both involved in um, Premiership Academy team. Oh, one of them's at Premiership Academy, the other one's got potential. You know, they didn't play rugby for 18 months, 15 months, whatever it was. I think at that age, that's quite developmentally um, important. You know, they thought at the end of it, they were thinking, well, I've lost a whole year for rugby. Mm -hmm. So I trained them outside when I was allowed to. I've got a yeah. very lucky year. We've got Milton Keynes, got lots of green spaces. We just did loads of simple rugby drills. Um, you know, there's a lot you can do with two people, one ball, even one person, one ball. I've got lots of little ideas. Yeah. <laughs> it's not the same, is it? You know, no. you that camaraderie of having those guys around you, missing that whole year. You know, I don't think we've really scratched the surface on the impact of that. Mm. Um, and then there's the whole thing, even before this, we were talking about teenagers not being active. 
Yeah. So then there's the pressure of homeschooling for parents, the kids not being active, the parents trying to tread water, trying to do their jobs, and they just go, do you know what? Do whatever you want. You know, do do yeah. school. Do, you know, it, it's it's a really challenging situation. I think it was just all about survival, really, at one point. Yeah. Um, you know, Absolutely. I know we had a situation where um, uh, I had COVID right at the start. I didn't know at the time because the only thing I had, I lost my sense of smell and taste for about oh, yeah. eight months. Yeah. Um, then I went to see a dentist six months later and he said, I'm not, not touching you, not until you have a test. Oh, really? I had a test, had a PCR test. Of course, at the time it didn't, no. it came back negative. But then I'd had an exam on uh, gustation, so your taste and smell. And I was thinking, oh, my God, if it's not COVID, it's something really horrible. So I've got to know. So I yeah. ended up having an, an antibody test and uh, it came back positive. So I vaguely know when it was. So at that time, um, I think we were on the brink of lockdown. Just found out my wife was pregnant with our second son. You know, everyone's talking yeah. about not Maybe being able to lockdown, yeah. You know, and I'm, I'm thinking, oh, my God, my wife's pregnant. I'm about to not be able to work because it's not allowed what am I going to do? And I'm studying. And it's like, God. And then we ended up, so I had one night of not being, not being able to sleep and a bit sweaty, but I put it down to a bit of anxiety to be totally honest. And then my sense of smell and taste disappeared. And I spoke to a nurse of mine who I trained. I said, Oh, you know, I don't know if is, is COVID is, is a sense of losing your sense of smell and taste. Is that part of it? She's like, no, I don't think so. And then two months later, of course, we now know. Yeah, yeah. It, now it's everything. You look at the list of symptoms yeah. that goes, goes on for uh, about three months. Yeah. I think pretty much anything, which is what makes it so difficult to decipher sometimes, because especially with little kids, because they've got coughs and colds pretty much most of, no. the, most of the time. But I had it a couple of weeks ago, actually, very similar to you. It was thankfully mild, but it was yeah, a bit sweaty and achy the first night very similar to a lot of things I've had, I think, in, in essence. But yeah, it's a it's a strange old time. It's good to have those antibodies, I suppose, to know because there's a lot of uncertainty. I think I might have had it even then and Omicron might be a different version yeah. of patch again or something like that. So yeah. it's really challenging. Like we um we get tested uh, twice a week to go to university. They require us because we've seen patients. Um, mm. and um, you meet all sorts of different people with different views on it and stuff like that. I think the general consensus is that you know, we just need to protect the people we need to protect now and try and sort of move forward socially and economically. Um, it's just really challenging. Yeah, it is. But yeah, um, we haven't really seen, I don't think, the impact of it totally yet. It'll come out, you know. Oh, well, you, you mentioned those lads as well. And one thing we talked about is the socialising aspect of sport. I think from for a lot of teenage boys in particular, but girls as well, there's a lot of those sports teams are how they kind of grow up and the, the, their peers and the people they you know riff off as they as they go through that stage so it is it is big we've, we've spent a lot of time with jonathan I'm, I'm mindful you're self-employed as well but um quickly sleep we touched about that in our messages to each other and you've got a 16 month and a three-year-old because sleep we're told all the time is so important for us i've done shift work nearly 20 years and still going to bed at 2 a.m and 3 a.m sometimes so it bleaks you out people at work say don't google shift work and they're like oh god and then you know and then you when you've got a, my daughter still she's seven years old but she'll still wake up a couple of times in the night sometimes and, and get into our bed get out of our bed and, and all this sort of stuff so it's something that we can't always control isn't it so i think you know i, I suppose it's doing doing our best is that the key not drinking coffees late at night that kind of thing yeah i'm a bit of a coffee fiend actually i love coffee but i have more recently now around about i'll, I'll have my last at about one o'clock i know everyone says 12 but i tend to yeah. work quite late so i feel like you know um so yeah the, there is there's certain things we can do. Sleep is absolutely key. That book I mentioned to you actually on our chats, Why We Sleep, is really fascinating. There's a few takeaways from there. And sleep is fascinating in that 
it's the only time that we are totally vulnerable. So from an evolutionary perspective, why do we still sleep as much as we do? You know, it's yeah. fascinating. And society isn't set up. The book's really good on anecdotally. It's Matthew, Matthew, Matthew Walker's book, isn't it? That's right, Matthew Walker. Yeah. So he's a neuroscientist um, and he's an expert on sleep. And um, he talks about us being larks and owls. I think a lot of people sort of throw that around but don't totally understand it. So we are, we're tribal. So this is going back, caveman, caveman. Mm. Um, you know, talking about actually from a tribal perspective, you you don't want everyone to sleep at the same time because you're most vulnerable then, aren't you? From mm. when things were hunting us, if you like. Um, yeah. I don't want to scare anyone. But, yeah. Sounds a bit like our shifts at Sky Sports News. It has to be on the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you, what, what the theory is, is that you are either a lark or an owl. So you either, you're happy to stay up later or you're really, you get up really early. And the, the concept is that actually what you'll end up doing is overlapping less so that potentially a tribe, you know, you get a lot of people go to bed early, a lot of people stay up later. When those people who stay up later go to bed, the people who go to bed early will be getting up possibly mm. around that time. So your actual overlap is probably four hours of no one being awake. That's the theory. Um, so society isn't really set up for that. So, you know, we're always led to believe if you get up in the morning and you're, you're tired, you're lazy because you're not, you yeah. know, actually, they might function better from a productivity point of view, those people in the afternoon. So why don't we sort of shift our thinking and saying, actually, if you're a bit of a bit of a lark, why don't you come into work a bit later and work a bit later? You know, it's interesting theories around that and schooling as well. You know, children at school who are less productive in the morning tend to be a bit more um, disruptive because their, their brain isn't working in the same way. It's really, it's really interesting book. Um, there's loads of things around sleep, which I think we could all do better, you know, looking at screens. How often do we leave our mobile phones downstairs? How often do we, last thing we do at night, look at our screen or watch a television yeah. or something like that, you know? Um, I do it, don't get me wrong. I'm definitely not a saint as far as that goes. Um, but I think of being aware of it. My phone is constantly on that anti-blue, whatever they call yes. it. Yes, yeah. I've got blue light blocking glasses as well, which have actually been a guy called Dhruvin Patel who's on the podcast that sent me a pair and they're really helpful as well, I think. And whether that's psychosomatic as well, I don't know, but consciously you, you, you're starting to unwind in the evening. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's there's a load of things which are a lot more subconscious and we don't recognise that stuff affects us. You know, when I talk to patients sometimes and they you talk to them about things and they all of a sudden put the pieces together and often a lot of that osteopathy side of it is them connecting the dots. You're just facilitating that. Um, and sleep is an interesting one, you know, where people come and say oh I don't feel very good today blah, blah, blah. and oh, I've got this injury and you're talking about what did you eat how did you sleep what did you do you know and then oh yeah maybe that was it and maybe maybe me lifting that thing hurt my back or my foot or whatever it was and it's and I think sleep is the one uh, one of his quotes in that book talks about um uh I think it's terribly paraphrasing here uh, all the exercise nutrition and science um you know you sleep is the one thing which is absolutely vital for our bodies yeah you, know, you if you don't sleep you actually you can in certain circumstances die you know because yeah. of the function yeah. of the body 
And, yeah, and I think, yeah, yeah and that, that, that information is important, but then it is like, say, brings up, it's interesting the psychologies of it as well with shift work as well, because I've done mm. early and I'm okay, I can pump adrenaline, get up and do an early, but I always feel the pressure the night before to sleep. So for me, a late yeah. is a more preferable thing because I can push through and then I know that I can sleep in in the morning, all being well, if yeah. my wife takes my daughter to school, I don't have to worry about that. So I prefer because I can just relax. Whereas I think certain psychologies of certain people, we see it as like, it's easier to achieve something and actually sleep isn't achieving. It's like relaxing, which other, some people find hard to do if you've got to get up early. Yeah, yeah. I'm not, just clarified, I'm not saying you're on the edge of anything catastrophic. No, 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 but, it, but, it, but you know, I think that's, there's always like things, a bit like playing rugby, there's always contradictions that, you know, you, you know, yeah. dangerous for you. And I know that my job, I, I love doing my job, but actually I'm probably better off doing a, a nine to five in terms of, in terms of the all round health, but it's, it's that it's this it's just managing it and, and sort of managing yourself as well like I, I know people yeah. who can switch shifts and just go to sleep when they want to you know they just yeah do that and it's it's interesting yeah it's i've got an, an ambulance um ambulance she's she's a paramedic but she's a like a management and she's constantly work shifts and she uses sleeping pills quite a bit mm. to sleep i kind of talked to her about that and you know said i've done it for years now i'm just kind of in that groove and she does i think it's four days of nights, four days off, four days of days, which is just like, yeah, I can't nuts. imagine, you know, like doing that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's, she loves it though. She absolutely loves it. And she loves the adrenaline. She loves, loves the job. So actually her motivation is far more than the physical side of it. It's all that, you know, psychological, emotional elements of it. So. And unlike, yeah, and unlike my job, it's, it's vital for society as well, driving an ambulance. Um, not that they yeah. don't really need the sports news at 1am, but maybe they think they need <laughs> it if they need it. Um, what about your, finally, your, your, how you live your life, what you do? And I suppose it's always a tension as well when, you, when you're trying to work and you're trying to study as well, because you're trying to keep yourself fit, because that's, as you say, one of the, the sort of big factors for you as a former rugby player. How do, how do you balance your life? What do you do? Oh, God, I spill my guts. Um, no, uh I, oh, yeah, I, I, I would say right now my life isn't as balanced as I'd like it. Um, it struck me when I, I went for a run the other day. Uh, okay, I've been trying to get like 5k runs in twice a week. Um, yeah. It hasn't always happened. Um, but it struck me when I was running that next year I'm going to have even less time because I've got two days in clinic. Suddenly dawned on me and I was like, oh God, how am I going to get through that? I think um, I, I teach classes and when I can with the classes I teach, so I teach a bit of strongman training and stretching and I always do a bit of relaxation. So I always take part in the stretching stuff and always do the relaxation. The strongman stuff, as long as it's not too um, risky for the people who are doing the class, I try and get involved as well. And then I actually, um, I've got a gym in the bottom of my garden. Um, and so I, I have... It's like not wanting to exercise where you work, though. You go in there and I go, oh, it's a day in here. Do I really want to? But me and my wife, we've, we've sort of do a bit of yoga together on a fr Friday night if time allows and if the boys are in bed early enough. Um, so that, like I was saying earlier about that restorative stuff, I'm trying to do much more stuff, which is stretching, yoga, relaxation. Um, I do still love kettlebells. I've done a bit of kettlebell sports. I'm really interested in that Ollie Mel when you talk to him about yes. it. I've done a few comments. Yeah, I did. I did a body power competition at the Body Power Expo in NEC. I did one of those, and I did one of the ones at Rushton. I need to get back into it. I haven't done any since. Do you think, do you think that's is it better to do kettlebells for us if we don't have time to do conventional weights and kettlebells? Do you think they're more it's more of a function? Oh, hell of a debate. Um, yeah. it's kettlebell lifting is um, it's endurance weightlifting. You know, like he would have explained in your other one. You know, yeah. it's so challenging, and actually. 
you know, like I touched on, I'm doing the jiu-jitsu, jiu-jitsu, kettlebell and rugby. I think there's a similar mentality in a lot of it. You know, you're, it's bloody hard. You've got to focus really hard. You're weightlifting, so your heart's going like the clappers. You know, you, it's a lot of similarity. So I find that quite interesting, that mental challenge mm. side of it. And also, to be totally honest with you, some of that kettlebell stuff actually hurts. You know, where the kettlebell's on your body, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, you're trying to lift it. 32 kilograms for an hour, I think he was saying. Oh, which is just some phenomenal. of those guys, yeah, some of those guys are just amazing. You know, their body weight to power ratio and the weights they're lifting compared to their body weights. You know, I, when I competed, I did 16 kilo kettlebells and I'm, I'm around about 100 kilos in body weight. So I'm pretty big. They're, you know, three quarters of my body weight and they're lifting half again. And I'm looking at them going, oh, how can you actually, you know, feel a bit like I should be lifting more? It's amazing what the body can do. That's the uh, the fascinating yeah. thing, isn't it? Um, well, it's, br- it's brilliant to speak to you, Jonathan. What are the plans going forward? Are you going to, for people watching or listening, sorry, we've not got the video component of the podcast yet, but it's, it's good. To, I can see you now. Are you going to be uh, continuing personal training of people in the Milton Keynes area in particular, or, or is it osteopathy people should contact you about and where should they go to, to find your contact details? Yeah, so, um, yeah this, is, this is the time I get to plug my, plug my businesses. Um, yeah. So if I run... I, like I said, we run Balance MK, which is a, a fitness-based class thing. We're part of that, sorry, um, which is all classes. That's balancemk.co.uk. Um, then I've got my own uh, jpptheealth.com, which is my website, which is actually being, I've got a meeting tomorrow to, to being updated. So I do personal training in my own gym here. Um, and then I've also got a private Facebook group online where I do live stream we do four classes a week two circuits classes two um yoga classes and then all of those videos plus a load more are on demand so there's like a hundred videos at the moment which is building constantly it's all about just trying to forge a bit of a community so a bit of a health conscious nutrition conscious community of people all with different goals lots of different people so i also run that as well um, and then I work from um, a local osteopathic clinic called MK Osteopaths. I'm a massage therapist and sports rehabilitator there. So people can come and see me and they can get that massage that I mentioned earlier. But it's not massage, it's therapy. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm not sure where you fit, then, the, fit the sleep in. This is like this, it's incredible. What <laughs> well, I, I quite like it. It's a bit of a mixture of stuff. So I don't do that every day. So certain days I focus on other things. And then on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, I pick up my son and we normally have an afternoon together of doing stuff after school, which is quite good. But um, my, my sort of plans, I don't see um, personal training and osteopathy as mutually exclusive. I think that... Um, Osteopathy used to be a very hands-on practitioner-led thing. I think all health and medicine now is going down that patient-centered route. And I think the autonomy of the person is very important. So giving people exercises to heal themselves is really important. So I, I, if I'm totally honest, in a nutshell, I'm not sure where I'm going with this really. <laughs> um, I want to get through the degree, finish that. And then there's a few things I like to explore. I'm really fascinated in women's health. Like mm. watching my wife give birth to our sons was just the most amazing thing. But I don't think there's enough support for ladies. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of stuff on menopause, which is in the media at the moment, which is really quite interesting, I find. Sure. You know, um, and a lot of people I happen to train, sort of a good half of the ladies I train are, that perimenopausal so i'm yet to decide exactly where i want to go with it but i think a combination of personal training osteopathy 
and then maybe fitting in a bit of rugby. Oh, and then my family. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the family. 16 months to the three-year-old as well, which is yeah. which is great. Well, it's impressive all the, the things you're pursuing with, with such enthusiasm. So inspirational to, to talk to you. And I think, I think actually it's really good to have that attitude of, of sort of holistic and complementary routines and uh, and disciplines that the physiotherapy you've, you've mentioned as well that you've had an interest in you're doing the massage you're doing the osteopathy you're doing the personal training and i think certainly from my upbringing as a as a father who had a kind of curious mind being a anesthetist then a gp then even did hypnotherapy then micronutrition i think it's, it's interesting i think having that variety and the more people that know more about different things we're talking about sleep there get a holistic attitude to it the, the healthier and, and sort of happier hopefully everyone can be yeah the concept of holism is really interesting, actually. It's a whole other debate. We talked about that. I don't think people truly understand what it is. Um, when we talked about it in our in our lecture, someone said, what's holism then? What is holistic? People say, oh, it's like candles and flowers and chanting. And it's, no, it's, it's looking at your body from every perspective you can, working out why there's dysfunction and how you can help yourself, you know. Mm. That physical, what do they call it, biopsychosocial sort of look at the body and... Um, whatever helps helps you know if it is sitting down in a room in a dark room and just listening to some nice calm music and relaxing yourself or if it's lifting weights or if whatever it is find out what you enjoy mm. what works for you and then go down that path I think yeah we get very tribal don't we doctors get tribal about what they do you know other yeah. alternative medicines will be like well this is the best way but actually kind of researching and, and trying a bit of everything and certainly in terms of exercise finding what works for you it's always a good approach. Jonathan, really pressure to have you on the podcast. Thank you and we'll stay in touch. Good luck with all the study and the, and the, and the work. No, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Hope you enjoyed that with Jonathan Phipps at Phipps82 on Twitter if you'd like to follow his journey from personal training or with personal training into osteopathy and sports massage and all the other aspects, rugby training from his rugby professional career. I do wonder whether his aptitude for learning keenness is probably built upon going abroad, expanding his horizons, learning another language in Spanish. Fascinating man. It's great to know sports exercise people are out there looking to inspire healthy lifestyles and turn around, I suppose, the, I guess, epidemic of, of ill health in terms of lifestyle issues, obesity, type 2 diabetes that are causing so much concern, so much suffering around the world, particularly the Western world. So uh, thank you to Jonathan for his time. Really appreciate it. He's clearly a very, very busy man as well. Um, if you like the podcast, please rate it on iTunes, tell a friend, Spotify, whatever platform you're listening on, always appreciate it. I think those personal references are powerful, aren't they, with so many millions of podcasts out there in the world. If someone tells you to listen to one who you respect and trust, it's always a good sign. So please, please pass it on if you enjoyed it. And thank you for, for listening. And thank you to the sponsors, Bang Nolofsson of Cheltenham for their ongoing support and Serene AV, specialists in some of the finest home entertainment brands, providing solutions based around high quality customer service and installations. And if you're looking to optimize your immunity, we'd like to try Cytoplan's food-based supplements, which Jonathan obviously referenced there as well. You can head to cytoplan.co.uk, C-Y-T-O-P-L-A-N.co.uk and the discount code at checkout associated with the podcast is Draper10R, my last name, D-R-A-P-E-R, all capital letters, the numerals one zero, and the capital letter R. Thank you very much for being here, and I hope you have a great week. Goodbye.